Good morning, TLC. So glad you're here. I'm so glad I get to be here. Uh, so this morning, what I'd like to do is start off by introducing you to uh, what I think is the greatest on-screen married couple of all time. Now, I know what you're thinking. No, it's not Noah and Allie Calhoun from The Notebook, okay? Uh, it's not even Clark and Ellen Griswold, all right, as amazing as they are. It's not Edward and Bella Cullen, for sure. Definitely not them. It's not even Jim and Pam Halpert from The Office. No, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest on-screen marriage of all time is Leslie and Sherry Ann Cabot from Best in Show. Leslie and I have been together five years. We have an amazing relationship. We both love soup and uh, we love the outdoors. Uh, we love snow peas and uh, talking and not talking. Uh, we could not talk or talk forever and still find things to not talk about. <laughs> we could talk or not talk forever and still find things to not talk about. Uh, now, uh, on the one hand, um, okay, they're not probably a very good on-screen marriage, but there is something about what she says that I think is actually pretty phenomenal. We could talk or not talk forever and still find things not to talk about. Have you ever seen a couple like that? Like, it's usually not a young couple, okay? It's usually an older couple. You maybe see them at a diner probably got the exact same meal every single time that they go there, and they're eating together with one another in silence, okay? Now, now, I'm not talking about a couple that, like, they just don't like each other anymore and they just stopped communicating. I'm talking about the couple that they just know each other so well. There's such safety in the relationship, such beauty, such depth, that they don't have to fill every second with words. They just enjoy being in one another's presence, that like there's just this depth and, and, and richness in the relationship. It's not that they don't communicate, it's that they communicate so well and so long and so intimately that just being with one another is enough. I actually think God wants the kind of relationship with you and I where you could talk or not talk forever and still find things to not talk about. God desires a relationship with his people. In fact, I actually think that that is kind of the story of the Bible from start to finish. It's all about God's relentless pursuit to be with his people. In fact, what I'd like for us to do today is walk through the entire Bible. You're like, what? Yes, that's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to start in Genesis, we're going to wind up in Revelation, and I want to talk to us as we engage in what it means to understand and know and love Holy Spirit, why God cares so much about being with us, what it looked like for God's presence to be 
with us. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I said a, a great, really short definition of the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. Last week, we talked about God's power in Holy Spirit. This week, we're going to talk about God's presence in Holy Spirit. But to do that, we need to start all the way at the very beginning. Now, here's the reality, okay? I got eight movements for us today. Eight, we're going to hit them. Snappy snap quick. If you're a note taker, get your pens out, get your notebooks out. We about to roll, all right? If you got your Bibles, you're going to need your Bible and you're going to be doing some flipping, all right? You might even want to put a little bookmark in the table of contents because we're going to go some places you probably ain't been in a while in your Bible, all right? So here's what we're going to do. It's going to be an eight parter, all right? You got to hang on and see if you can at the end Tell me all eight of these parts. I got a $5 gift certificate for somebody who can do that for me, all right, to Starbucks. It's going to go garden, Sinai, tabernacle, temple, exile, Jesus, church, body. You ready? Here we go. Garden, Genesis chapter 2. God has created humanity, and God and Adam and Eve have perfect relationship. So they're just chilling together, hanging out, talking together. They can talk and not talk forever and still find things to not talk about. It's amazing, all right? In fact, Genesis 3 seems to indicate that God will come and just stroll through the garden and just hang out with Adam and Eve, that that's just kind of how things were. It was perfect, exactly what God desired, why he created us so that we could be with him and experience all the blessing that comes with that. Genesis 3, though, we learn that Adam and Eve distrust God's love. And they rebel against the one thing that God had asked them not to do, which is to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, they drive a wedge between God and humanity for all time. Sin enters into our DNA as humans, and it fractures the relationship that we have with God. And you can read the rest of Scripture as God's relentless pursuit to be with us. This happens as he comes to Noah, even though the rest of the world, the entire world is filled with sin. It's so bad that God's like, man, I almost wish I hadn't created humanity, but he rescues humanity through Noah and his family. And then eventually we go to Abraham and Abraham, God chooses to send him out, says, I'm going to make a people from you. Uh, God sends him out. Abraham, in faith, believes what God has said. God counts that to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham has a child, Isaac. Isaac uh, has a child, uh, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph, the youngest one, uh, rescues the family in Egypt when there's a famine. Uh, they forget who Joseph was. They wind up enslaving this family that grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. They're enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. And then God sends Moses to finally free this family that has now become a people that he wants to make his special possession. Flip with me to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Here we go. We're going to start reading in verses 5 and 6. God has led through Moses, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt. They're now at Mount Sinai where God is going to make this covenant with them. Starting in verse 5, God says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You know what priests do? Priests mediate between God and humanity. Israel was supposed to be a nation of priests. 
mediating God's blessing to all the rest of humanity. If you know the Old Testament at all, you know Israel had a hard time doing this well. A holy nation, these are the words you're to speak to the Israelites, God tells Moses. Moses goes talks to the Israelites, you're like, yes, we want this. And so God says, all right, prepare yourselves. In three days, I'm coming, and I'm going to have you assemble around me, all right? You're going to come and assemble before me. So jump down to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud. Pay attention to that. A thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. Okay? So they're coming to assemble around God at Mount Sinai. Uh, They stood at the foot of the mountain. Verse 18, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Yahweh descended on it in fire. Uh, Just so you know, if you ever see in the Old Testament the word Lord, L-O-R-D, and it's in all caps, that is God's proper name, Yahweh. So sometimes you hear me say Lord, sometimes I just say Yahweh. Because Yahweh descended on it in fire. The smoke billed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. This is a crazy, intense moment. This is what we call the Shekinah glory or God's manifest presence, okay? God is everywhere at all times, okay? He's omnipresent. However, we can't as humans experience his full glory. The weight of it's too much for our human bodies to handle. And so uh, there are times when God, though, will make his manifest presence known. All right, where he manifests himself and allows us to experience a portion of his like power, his presence. That's what happens here at Mount Sinai. God comes down on the mountain, it says, in a cloud. All right? And it's crazy, man. The whole thing is shaking. There's like this trumpet blast kind of a thing happening. All right? Thunder and lightning and fire and smoke and like things are shaking. And then God speaks the Ten Commandments over the people. It's so terrifying that the people actually go to Moses like, Moses, please tell God to stop speaking to us because we're going to die. They're not saying that hypothetically, like, oh, it's just too much, like turn down the volume. No, literally they think that they're going to physically die, like they just their bodies can't handle it. God's presence, he wants them to see, like, I'm here with you, among you, my power, my presence. God comes down in a cloud. All right, that's Mount Sinai. Covenant is made. Uh, Almost immediately, they forget. They make a golden calf. They start to worship that. You're like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Like, this is like within weeks, okay? Maybe days of this experience. So God says, all right, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before I bring you into the land that I've prepared for you. But while you're wandering, I want you to make me my own tent, tabernacle, okay? So the tabernacle is our next word. Tabernacle is uh, simply, it's, it's like a, it was a really fancy tent that God said to make. So when Israel went camping for 40 years in the wilderness, God said, make me a tent. Whenever you stop, uh, set up my tent first, all right? And uh, he gives these very ornate instructions of what the tent's supposed to look like, the tabernacle. And we find that in second, or excuse me, Exodus 40. So flip to the end of Exodus. Moses makes this temple, or this tabernacle, excuse me. The end of verse 33 just says, so Moses finished the work. Then in verse 34, it says this. Then the cloud, remember the cloud that came down on Mount Sinai? The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord 
Yahweh, filled the tabernacle, the tent, the dwelling place. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. All right? So what did we have first? Garden. Very good. And now we have tabernacle. That's right. God's presence comes down to be with them. And so they would literally see a manifestation of God's presence. A cloud that at the very beginning when the tabernacle is uh, inaugurated, like it's so thick that Moses has to like leave, can't even be there. All right. So we've got garden, God's presence. And now we've got Mount Sinai. Sorry, we skipped that, didn't we? Garden, Mount Sinai, and now tabernacle. Now the, eventually Israel gets into the land, right? Moses leads them to the very edge. Joshua takes over, leads them into the promised land. They have some prophets. Then after a little while, the people are like, we want a king like everybody else. And God's like, I'm your king. They're like, yeah, but we want a human king. God's like, you really don't. They're like, yeah, we do. And so he's like, all right, fine. So he gives them Saul. And when they get Saul, then David comes along. David actually sets up uh, the ruling city, Jerusalem, in Israel, which kind of becomes the capital, is the capital of Israel. And he wants to build God a temple. God doesn't have a house. He's like, I got a house, God. Let me build a house for you. God says, uh, nope, you got too much blood on your hands. Uh, You can just save up for it, and your son will build it. So Solomon comes on the scene. Solomon builds this amazing temple, okay? It's amazing. Pick up the story with me in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, all right? It's going to be one you got to flip over to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. Then you get to... First and Second Chronicles. All right, so Second Chronicles, chapter five. Second Chronicles, chapter five. This is the dedication of the temple. Solomon's built it. He's prayed uh, um, to dedicate the temple, and we read that uh, this is what happens. Verse thirteen: The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to Yahweh, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. The singers raised their voices to praise in praise to the Lord and saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord of Yahweh was filled with what? The cloud. Yes, God's manifest presence, His Shekinah glory, all right? At Mount Sinai, at the tabernacle, and now here at the temple, okay? Comes down in a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. The priests that are supposed to be serving and ministering there and singing and praising, they're like, oh, we can't, like, it's too much. They got to come out of the temple. Then Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell. That word dwell is the same word that we get tabernacle, okay? He would tent with us, tabernacle with us, dwell with us in a dark cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Now, uh, we could keep reading in chapter 7, uh, 1 to 3, to see a little bit more of the story of what happens, uh, but flip down with me, chapter 7, verse 14, okay? Chapter 7, verse 14, God appears to Solomon, 
This is while this is all happening. This is at the dedication when God, as a cloud, has come down, made his manifest presence known. He takes up his dwelling place in the Holy of Holies at the temple. Then God speaks to Solomon. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Just note, if anybody tries to like drop this on you to like why we ought to pray for America, okay, God's not talking about America or any other country, all right, here. He's talking to Israel. Now, his people, though, should still pray. The land, though, is something very different. Now my eyes will be open, he says, and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Do you see what he says? He's like, look, I'm taking up residence here. And when you come and call on me, I will listen to you. I will see you. My heart will be with you. Keep reading, though. Drop down to verse 19. God says to Solomon, but if you turn away, and forsake the decrees and commands I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, and will reject this temple. See that? I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. Now, if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that Israel has a hard time Worshiping God and God alone and serving God, Yahweh, and Yahweh alone. But God is so gracious and patient that he continues to be patient for years, decades, centuries with Israel. But finally, God does what he said he would have to do because God honors his covenants. God is a God of his word. And so because they continue to serve other gods and worship other gods, Eventually, Assyria comes in, takes away the northern kingdom. Jerusalem is still left, and then Babylon comes in and carries them away. And the people are now living in exile. The temple has not been destroyed yet when Ezekiel, the prophet, gets a vision from God. All right, so we started in what? Garden, right? Then we went to God's presence on Mount Sinai, and then God's presence came in a cloud on tabernacle and then from tabernacle it came down in the temple yes now flip over with me to ezekiel chapter 10 now we hit exile exile ezekiel chapter 10 got to get past psalms proverbs isaiah jeremiah then you get yourself to some lamentations and then ezekiel ezekiel chapter 10 we're going to start in verse 18. Uh, This is a vision that God gives to Ezekiel the prophet. Now remember at this time, uh, Israel has been carried off. They're in exile in Babylon. All right. The temple is still standing. It has not been destroyed yet, but the people have been scattered. God gives this vision to Ezekiel starting in verse 18. says, then the glory of Yahweh departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim while I watched the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. So there's this chariot with cherubim angels that basically 
God's presence leaves the Holy of Holies, steps out of the temple, and he says, And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of Yahweh's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. God is leaving the temple. In fact, if we were to continue reading in verse 11, we would see that uh, God's presence is then carried uh, down the hillside and then up the Mount of Olives and then goes away for good. Uh, Just a few years later, the temple gets destroyed. What God said he would do, he's done. And so all this time, uh, we've got garden, Mount Sinai, God's presence wanting to be with his people. They rebel. He says, I'll still be with you in the tabernacle. They get into the actual land and comes in on the temple and they continue to rebel and God scatters them and God leaves the temple. And the question is, where is God? Where is his presence? Will we ever see it again? Well, uh, there's a number of prophets in the Old Testament that actually begin to foresee a time when God's presence will return to the temple, where he will gather Israel back into the land, and he will return to the temple, okay? Uh, Flip over. um, There's a number of places we could go, but let's stay in Ezekiel for this. Ezekiel 37, okay? Ezekiel 37. Um, Little spoiler alert, but while you're turning there, the same way that uh, God leaves, leaving uh, the Holy of Holies, going, walking out of the temple, and then through the east gate, and then down the hill, and up to the Mount of Olives, It's the same route that Jesus takes when he comes into the temple. Ezekiel 37. Uh, This is a crazy uh, vision that God gives to Ezekiel. It's called the Valley of the Dry Bones. Okay, maybe some of you have heard of this before. Takes Ezekiel to this valley and it's just skeletons. Just dried up, you know, sun-bleached bones uh, laying there. And uh, this is what God says. Verse 11. Then God, he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We're cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my ruach, my spirit, my wind, my breath in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own uh, land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, Yahweh, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. They begin to imagine a time, we talked about this, I think, week one as well, when God is going to bring Israel back to the land, and he's going to put his spirit, his ruach, back in the people. Now, this is different than anything that's happened before because up until this time, spirit's kind of back in the shadows and he pops out and he comes on a person for a time to do uh, like a, a, a wicked cool thing, right? And then he steps back into the shadows. And now the prophets are saying, there is a time coming when God's gonna gather them back. He says, my presence is gonna come back to the temple and I'm going to put my spirit in you. My spirit's gonna come on you. Like not just a person for a time, but In all of them, he's talking to the nation. Let's keep going. We've got about 400 years here where uh, God is just 
gone. The prophets are envisioning the time when that's going to be reversed, that people are going to be back and God's presence is going to come, the Spirit's going to be on them. But for 400 years, really nothing. Now, uh, the temple does get rebuilt about 100 years later, and then uh, King Herod, king of the Jews during uh, Jesus' early life, is uh, he actually like makes the, the, the temple way bigger and cooler, basically. Uh, the temple was on like this uh, mountain, like kind of hill, really. And then there was another hill kind of like over here. And he literally brought in, I don't know how many cubic tons of just dirt and land and basically filled in this entire valley to make the, the uh, temple mount what it is today. It's huge. And he builds this temple on there. Uh, it's supposed to be for God. Really, it's for Herod, okay, because <laughs> he's a megalomaniac and he's got like mad, mad issues. Um, but it's just amazing, amazing. And, and the priests are actually there. I mean, it's filled with gold and like, it's like crazy, crazy amazing. And the priests are there. Here's the thing, though. Through all Jewish literature, uh, religious literature, secular literature, uh, any biblical, uh, there is zero reference to God's presence ever returning. I was still looking forward to that day. They still had the prophets. They still believe. But this is where Jesus comes in. So we have garden, Mount Sinai, tabernacle, temple, exile, God goes away, and now Jesus. Jesus is now here on the scene. All right, so um, Jesus, let's read John chapter 1. We'll start there, verse 14. Flip open to John chapter 1, verse 14. Finally, into the New Testament now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 1. All right. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling, that's the word tabernacle, okay? Jesus tented with us, all right? He tabernacled, he dwelt with us. The word became flesh. The word, God, becomes flesh in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So the glory of God, right, this cloud that filled Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple, now it's on Jesus. That's the glory, the Shekinah, that's being talked about. And Jesus, it says, dwelt among us, where we get the same word tabernacle, okay? So, Jesus is dwelling among us. Now, um, there is this uh, concept, uh, I'll read this quick quote, dwelling in verse 14 is related to tabernacle, which served as the place for God. You don't need to know that. Okay, it doesn't matter. Let's keep going, all right? I got too much stuff, we're just running. So, you can read that, whatever, it's all good. Here's the deal, okay? Jesus is essentially a walking temple, all right? Jesus is essentially a, that's what it's saying here. Jesus is a walking temple. It's the place where God's presence is. All right? And everything that goes along with that, the power, all of that, Jesus is a walking temple. Now, Jesus keeps getting in trouble. All right? He gets in trouble for a lot of reasons, partly just because he's spicy, and that's just Jesus. But uh, also because he keeps doing things that it was illegal to do outside of the temple. 
you couldn't forgive someone's sins. That was only something that a priest could do at the temple. You had to come, you had to offer a sacrifice, uh, it would be accepted, the priest would take it, and that's how your sins could be forgiven. Jesus is walking around like, your faith has healed you, and I forgive your sins. People are like, what? Knock it off, you can't do that! That's illegal, that's against the Torah. Jesus getting in all kinds of trouble, releasing people from spiritual debt, Doing stuff that's only supposed to happen at the temple. Why can he do it? Well, because he is the temple. God's presence has not returned to the second temple until, keep reading with me, flip over to John chapter 2, verse 19. I had forgotten about this. When Jesus started his public ministry, um, the very first thing that happened was he uh, makes 150 gallons of wine, <laughs> which is a pretty epic way to start your ministry, I suppose. Um, uh, I, when I get to heaven, I'm like, Jesus, can you do that again? Like, I just want to taste it. Like, they said it was awesome, like the best wine. I want to taste it. Sorry, that's a side note. Um, Jesus, the very first thing that he does as part of his public ministry is actually to go to the temple. Do you know what he does when he goes to the temple? He gets crazy angry. He goes off. He's like, this is not how my temple is supposed to be run. My father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. Y'all have turned it into a den of thieves. And he starts whipping folks and turning stuff over. I was like, man, I thought that happened way later. And that was one of the first things Jesus does, according to John's gospel. Comes down from the Mount of Olives, goes through the east gate and into the temple. Mm, does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. God has actually returned his presence to the temple. It's just not how people expected it was going to happen. It happened in the form of Jesus when Jesus goes to be crucified and die for us. He comes from the Mount of Olives, goes through the East Gate and into the temple before he's crucified. John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus has just flipped over a bunch of tables. He's like, stop turning my father's house into a market. Verse 19, uh, sorry, verse 18, they say, um, the Jews respond to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Who are you to do this, dude? And this is what he says. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. See that? Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it in three days. They're like, man, we've been working on this for like two generations. Even longer than that. You're going to... You're going to dis we're destroy it and you're going to raise it back up? But see, Jesus is like, no, 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 no. See, you've lost. You've missed it. <laughs> I am the presence of God. I am where God is found. Destroy me and I'll raise it up in three days. And that's exactly what he does at his resurrection. God is a temple, or excuse me, Jesus is a temple replacement. That's what John Mark Comer says. Jesus is claiming to be temple or the temple replacement. Jesus is where God's glory is now found, where his presence is found, because he is God in a tent of flesh. That's what it says in John 1.14. So what does that mean for us? Well, so glad you asked. We've got garden, Mount Sinai, tabernacle, temple, exile, Jesus, now the church, the church. Uh, flip over with me to Acts chapter 2, just a little bit over. Acts chapter 2, Jesus 
tells him he's got to go, but he's going to send the Spirit uh, behind him, and he tells his disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit that I'm going to send to you. They're like, all right. So there's 120 of them. 120 of them. They're in Jerusalem. They're praying. They're waiting for the Spirit, which is interesting. Uh, Jesus does three years of ministry, and his, the church he plants has 120 people. Three years, and all Jesus could get was 120 people? Loser. Or was he? So interesting how we sometimes judge different fruits, isn't it? Jesus tells them to go and wait, and they do, and they pray, and then in Acts chapter 2, we find this. Sorry, Jesus, you're not a loser. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. All right? The word ruach in Hebrew can mean wind, spirit, breath, living water. All right? We get this kind of concept here where he says, the, suddenly like a sound of blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. You ever heard language like this before? Something that comes and fills the whole place? All right, and this is a violent wind. You ever thought, like, what's a violent wind? <laughs> like, I've never been, in, like, I've been in, like, some heavy winds, but I've never been in a tornado. I don't know what it was like. I don't know what was going on. It was, like, stuff spinning and people, like, floating up. I don't know, but it's crazy. It's like this violent wind, right? The spirit comes down, and who does it come down on? Filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. If you're not sure how many is each, keep reading. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is the prophecy that's been foretold from the prophets that Jesus has promised. The Spirit has now come, and he hasn't just come to then step back into the shadows. He's now come not just on a person, but on all of them and stays the very thing, God's presence has come down on them. And this is when the church is born. This is when the church is born. In fact, right after that, uh, Peter goes out. He preaches. Uh, 3,000 people give their lives to Christ. They start meeting in Solomon's colonnade. It's a part of the temple structure. They're meeting there daily. They're sharing everything that they have. They're breaking bread together. They're starting to take communion, like an early communion, this meal to remember uh, God's, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, like there's this beautiful stuff that's happening. They're praying, like it's like an amazing story of how the church begins, okay? So you're like, all right, so what does that all mean? Flip over with me, two more passages real quick, 1 Corinthians, okay? So most of the rest of the New Testament is about this assembly, this little Jesus assembly in all the different places that it starts to pop up in all these different cities, people that assemble around Jesus and experience his power and presence, Okay? So uh, this particular one was written to uh, the church that was meeting in Corinth, the group of believers that assembled together in Corinth. And uh, we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Apostle Paul writes this. He says, don't you know that you yourselves, that's plural, you, all y'all, okay, that all y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit, his ruach, dwells, tabernacles, in your midst, if anyone destroys God's temple, God's church, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Look, there is a temple. There is still a temple to this day, all right? 
it's not made of like raggedy green carpet and you know lots of like muted neutrals, okay? It's made of the people. It's not the building, it's the people. We together are God's temple. Why? Because God dwells in our midst. Just the same way that God came down when Israel assembled around God at Mount Sinai, when they assembled around him at the tabernacle, when they came and assembled around him at uh, the temple. Now when we assemble around Jesus in our Jesus gatherings, Holy Spirit is with us in a powerful way. We together are the temple. That's why God cares about his church. There's really only one thing that sometimes I will like say stupid things on Facebook about. All right, I don't get into like political, I do my very best to not get into political battles with people or like, you know, uh, uh, any of that kind of stuff. But when I see people rip the church, that's one of the few times I will often say something. I Like I want to defend her. She's Christ's bride. I think the church is amazing. Uh, I think the fact that uh, Americans are so quick to like, we, we, we do, we're not, the church is not perfect. I'm not trying to say that. We hurt each other at times. Like there's things that happen. But we're so quick to be like, well, I just like, I hate the church. I'm giving up on the church. I'm not giving up on Jesus. I'm like, you can't, that's like saying like, yo, I really like you, but your wife sucks. Like, no, 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 like, we're going to throw down. You say that my wife sucks, we're going to throw down, because, like, I'm going to defend her, right? That's how I feel about the church. Why? Jesus feels the same way. God feels the same way. We together are where God's presence is. All right, flip over just a couple more. This is our last one. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. This is all within the, con- uh, the, the context of sexual purity. Paul's like, look, you can't sleep around. You can't sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend or uh, anything else. You, you can't. You only should be sleeping with having sex with your husband or your wife that you're married to. This is the context. You're like, why, did he, why, why is that a big deal for God? Like, why does he care? Big stinking what, man? Just two bodies. Two consenting adults. Well, you want to know why? Let's read verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality, he says. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies, that's singular, okay? It's not talking about the whole church. It's talking about individuals. You personally, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. God's like, look, I have put my spirit in you as an individual. The same thing that came down on Mount Sinai and the tabernacle and the temple and on Jesus, I've now put it in you. That presence, power, like it's in you. Oh, man, people, I'm just telling you, we don't get it. I don't get it. Like I think about this stuff a lot because I got to teach it, right? But it still blows my mind. This never happened before in human history where God's presence indwells us. You're like, all right, cool, cool, cool. What does um, all of that mean, okay? What's so important about all that? Like, I get it, okay? And if we were to continue on, I'm not even going to go there, but Revelation envisions the day when what we had in the garden is going to happen again, that we will see God face to face. Right now, God's spirit indwells us, but the time is coming when Jesus can return. He's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to make all things new. 
and we're going to be with God, just like it was with Adam and Eve in the garden before sin ever came into the world. That's what we look forward to. But in the meantime, we have this unbelievable, amazing gift that is God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, his presence and power in us, in us. So what does all this mean? This simply just means this. God has gone to great lengths to be with you. Are you trying to do the same? God has gone to great lengths to be with you. He even gave his own son, allowing him to die on the cross for us. He's given us his spirit to indwell us. God has gone to great lengths. So if we want to experience the fullness of the spirit and all that comes with that, it happens in relationship. Remember that stupid little video with Leslie and Sherry and Cabot, right? There is something about a depth of relationship, not theirs, but a really good one, right? Where you can just be with somebody, where you can just enjoy their presence and company. There's this ongoing conversation and, and you can just enjoy being in their presence. Dallas Willard said this. He said, the first and most basic thing we can do is to keep God before our mind. The first and most basic thing we can do is to keep God before our mind. It's this concept of practicing the presence of God. Uh, there was a guy, his name was Nicholas Herman. He's born in the early 1600s. Born uh, very poor in uh, France. Parents were poor. He didn't get to go to get that much education. Uh, the Thirty Years' War began in Europe, so he got conscripted into the army. Uh, saw the, the terrors and treacheries of war, was wounded himself. Uh, had an experience with Jesus at that time rekindled his love for Christ and decided he wanted to go and serve uh, the poor. And so he joined a monastery in Paris where he took the name Brother Lawrence. That's how most of us know him today. He was a nobody, right? He wasn't some like well-known dude or anything like that. Uh, but he began to say, I want to practice the presence of God. It's kind of a little term he coined. Practicing the presence of God. He was a dishwasher. That's what he did. Worked in the kitchen. Wash dishes. As he got older, he repaired sandals, okay? Not glamorous stuff. But what he said is that he was going to uh, do whatever he could to remember that he was with God at all times. In fact, look at this quote. He says, the time of busyness does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were on my knees. Practicing the presence of God is just becoming aware that God is with us at all times. They would say he had one foot in front of the sink and one foot in heaven. And as the decades went on, and I mean decades, more and more people began to realize that there's something different about this man simply because of the way that he had learned to practice recognizing God's presence was with them at all times. People that were powerful and rich came because they wanted to like know him and, 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 and ask him to pray for them and, and give them wisdom and insight. In fact, there's a book, highly recommended. It's just called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. That was written after he died. It was about uh, things that he had um, said to people and uh, letters that had been written, and they kind of compiled it and turned it into a book, Practicing the Presence of God. I was in Israel uh, a couple of years ago walking on this path that goes from Jericho or Jerusalem to Jericho. I think you've heard me talk about this a little bit before. The path is no wider anywhere than, than this little teaching stage. In fact, most of the times it's like about this wide and there's like just a cliff, like cliffs going up, 
cliff going down, all right? And you're walking along. Uh, this is the same place that Jesus talked about, the Good Samaritan, where the Good Samaritan gets, like, robbed and beat up, and uh, the, the priest and Levite, like, walk around him. You get a little bit more of a vision when you realize they literally had to, like, almost step over him. Like, it's that small, all right? Same place where the valley of the shadow of death is that David talks about in Psalm 23. That's it. And I'm walking on there, and I'm saying, like, to God, um, I'm just wanting to practice the presence. I'm wanting to, like, engage my holy imagination. So let everybody else walk in front. I'm kind of walking out behind, and I'm talking to Jesus. And I just imagine Jesus there. And the more we talk, I'm, like, asking him stuff, like, oh, we, where were you, you know, like, what were you thinking about with the good Samaritan? We're, like, having this conversation. I know it sounds weird, but it's, like, the, I was, that's what I was trying to do. And God, he said something, like, funny. I don't remember what it was, and I was, like, laughing. Like, that's kind of weird, I know. But I'm, like, like I'm having, like, a legit conversation. And, and uh Jesus says to me, he's like, do you know who you're talking to? He's like, you're talking to my spirit. And I'm in my mid-40s at this point. I'm just like, all of a sudden, it's done on me. Yeah, when I have holy imagination and I'm talking to Jesus, like, that's, like, hey, spirit, <laughs> that's who you are. He's just with me. Uh, this morning, I was driving in, and uh, I'm having a conversation with, with spirit. I'm, I'm envisioning Jesus sitting in the seat next to me, driving in by myself. And he had some things he needed to say to me. One of the things was I needed to, like, uh, confess something. Just needed to, like, apologize for something. And another thing, I'm just talking to him, like, God, I got a lot of scriptures. He's like, I know. It's mine. It's good. You should do it. <laughs> it's like, all right, we're going to do it. He's like, yeah, we got this. I'm, like, having this conversation. Like, that's what it means, practicing the presence. One of the things that I've been uh, doing as part of my trellis, if you're in a local group, and if you're not in a local group, you should get in one, but we have uh, this concept called trellis, and what we're trying to do is help people engage with spiritual practices. So one of the things I realized that I wanted to start doing was just recognizing God's presence when I wake up. So the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning, before my feet hit the ground or when my feet hit the ground before I stand up, I just say, good morning, God. I know that you're here. I recognize that you're here with me. Let's do this day together. You see, guys, what God wants from us more than anything else is to be with us. He's gone to great lengths to be with us. And the more that we can begin to practice the presence of God, making him, just making ourselves aware of him in our lives, the more we begin to gain access to all that God has for our lives, his power, his encouragement, his care, his leadership, uh, uh, the questions that we have, the things that we wonder about, that's what it means. That's what God desires for us. Uh, Brother Lawrence said this, and I want to close with this. He says, he does not ask much of us, merely a thought of him from time to time, a little act of adoration, sometimes to ask for his grace, sometimes to offer him your sufferings, at other times to thank him for the graces past and present. Lift up your heart to him during your meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. One need not cry out very loudly. He is nearer than we think. Friends, what I want us to do is practice the presence of God together as a church. I want us to get better at recognizing that God is with us, whether we're in front of the sink, whether we're taking out the trash, whether we're driving someplace, whether we're at work in the cubicle, watching a game on TV, hanging out with some friends, God is with us. And the more we can recognize his presence with us, the more we're going to have access to all that he has to offer us. So what I'd love for you all to do this week, this is my little challenge, take a little slip of paper somewhere and just write, God is with me, or practicing the presence of God. And whatever you want to do that's going to remind you that, that God is with you. Tape it to your rearview mirror in the car. 
put it in your pocket or stick it up on your bathroom mirror, in the kitchen, on the fridge, whatever. But just someplace that will help to remind you, God is with me. God is with me. Because the more that we begin to recognize his presence with us and the great lengths that he's gone for us to be with him, the more we begin to engage in his power. We're going to sing a few songs to be reminded of that beautiful reality that God is here with us right now. We, church, are his temple. Amen.